Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next offers listeners an in-depth analysis of the most pressing issues of the day. Our experts are given just six minutes to present, and that is followed by a question and answer period for deeper engagement. This week's topics include the stupidity of war, inflation, Brooklyn, cultivating influence, and models and bottles. Our first speaker is John Muir, who is the Woody Hayes Senior Research Scientist at the Merchant Center at The Ohio State University, and he is also a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. John's new book is entitled The Stupidity of War, American Foreign Policy and the Case for Complacency. John makes the case that America's wars for the past 70 years have been counterproductive and that the United States should consider using military force to solve foreign policy disagreements very rarely. Our second speaker is Lou Alexander, who is the chief U.S. economist at Nomura Securities. Lou has previously worked for U.S. Treasury, the Federal Reserve Board, and Citibank. Personally, I think that inflation will be the most important issue of this economic cycle, so I've asked Lou to speak about his forecast for inflation over the next couple of years and how it will impact long-term inflationary expectations. Our third speaker is my friend Kay Heimowitz from the Manhattan Institute, who has spoken previously at my book club. Kay has a new book called The New Brooklyn, What It Takes to Bring a City Back to Life. Last week, we heard from Tom Dija about the transformation of New York City, and I hope to continue that conversation with Kay to learn more about the incredible rejuvenation of Brooklyn and why young people desperately want to work, live, and play there. It was only a few years ago that this community was seemingly on the ropes. Our fourth speaker is Jonathan Levy, who is the author of You're Invited, The Art and Science of Cultivating Influence. I hope to learn from John about the dinner parties that he throws with strangers to improve his social network. John will be the third Levy brother to speak on what happens next, which is unprecedented for any family. John's brother, Ofer, who has been my friend for over 30 years, runs Harvard's vaccine department. And John's uh, other brother, Amnot, spoke previously with Moody's uh, about his experience at Moody's changing risk models that have been adjusted due to the pandemic. Our final speaker today is Ashley Mears, who is a sociologist at Boston University. Ashley came to academia with an unusual path. Ashley is a former fashion model, and she has written a new book entitled Very Important People, Status and Beauty in the Global Party Circuit. I hope to learn from Ashley about how promoters persuade fashion models to party at clubs so that wealthy men will buy their overpriced bottle service. There is some crazy stuff going on over there. Every month since the beginning of what happens next, I've spoken about the Bureau of Labor Statistics Employment Report. I do this because employment is the leading indicator for the health of the American economy. This month was another big surprise. While the average Wall Street economist was expecting around 1 million new jobs in the month of April, the report was a big disappointment, with the establishment survey showing an increase in payroll employment of just 266,000. This may have been the largest miss by Wall Street economists in my lifetime other than last March and April when nobody had any idea what was happening. There was no good news in this labor report as manufacturing jobs were down by 20,000 and all the increase appeared to be confined to the travel and hospitality industry. One interesting aspect of the report looked at the percentage of workers who are working from home using Zoom due to the pandemic. The percentage of teleworkers declined from 21% to 18.3% of all U.S. employees. This means that over 4 million workers went back to the office in April, likely because they have been vaccinated and feel safe to return to work. And this is a big deal. You may recall that six weeks ago, K 
Casey Mulligan, who is a University of Chicago labor economist, spoke on what happens next. Casey predicted that the supplemental unemployment benefits offered by the federal government in the stimulus bills would discourage workers from seeking near-term employment. There seems to be very high demand for workers, and many U.S. companies are complaining that they cannot find suitable employees at any reasonable wage. Some state governors have announced reductions in unemployment benefits and additional stipends to workers to find jobs now. Janet Yellen, the U.S. Treasury Secretary, however, played down the importance of unemployment benefits to explain Friday's weak employment report. I know that the large miss in employment in April was frustrating, but the employment data series is particularly volatile right now and seems to be opposite of other anecdotal evidence that we see with higher commodity prices, new construction projects, and new job postings. We will have to see if the employment data was a fluke or erroneous and whether the economy continues to accelerate with the vaccination process now in full swing. I do wonder if some workers have adapted to the pandemic with less desire to work or a preference to work few hours from home. We will find out if these new norms are temporary and whether we can get back to our old way of doing business. I also think that there might be a substantial number of potential workers who fear getting COVID and would prefer to hunker down until COVID risks are reduced by a significant margin. Public health officials have continued to emphasize the risks of COVID, even for those who've taken the vaccine. I think we may want to consider a change in our public health message that de-emphasizes the risk for vaccinated uh, workers and encourages them to go back to the office. I do think that if the unvaccinated see vaccinated co-workers back at the office and in restaurants and public spaces, that it will encourage those who have not been vaccinated to do so. Another possibility that might explain slow employment rebound is that many schools remain closed despite the fact that teachers have had the opportunity to get vaccinated now for months. It seems likely that parents feel the need to be home for, if their children can't go to school. Hopefully the government can mandate vaccines for both teachers and students to get the schools open soon, hopefully in time for summer school. If you're interested in listening to a replay of today's program or any other previous episode or wish to read a transcript, you can find them on my website, whathappensnextin6minutes.com, and replays are also available on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify. All right, let's begin today's program with John Muir from Ohio State to discuss the stupidity of war. John, please go ahead. Okay, thanks very much. Uh, my book, The Stupidity of War, American Foreign Policy, and the Case for Complacency, uh, is basically sort of a biography of the idea that war is really stupid. Uh, that may be somewhat strange because you think people thought that for a long time and you'd be basically right. But until about 100 years ago, at the end, after World War I, um, that, it was not a very common thing at all. Uh, instead, if you, if you look at the literature before World War I, you're constantly, it's very easy to find people, theologians, philosophers, historians, as well as militarists, talking about how beautiful and wonderful war is. It's redemptive, necessary, and progressive, while peace is filled with uh, uh, bovine content, utter despair, and death. Um, the, uh, and that's when, that was basically the case before World War I. After World War I in Europe, it's basically impossible to find, almost impossible to find people saying that anymore. Instead, what happened, there was a big change of attitude toward war in which the idea of that the countries should continue to fight each other over disputes, international wars in other words, um, uh, should, should be abolished rather along the way that uh, formal slavery had been abolished in the previous century. Um, so starting right, in, right after the war in 1918, there was a large effort to form a League of Nations and outlaw war and they have methods for arbitration and so forth. Um, then, then there was obviously World War II, which is a, uh, 
in, in my view, basically, there's two things that should be said about it. One is that Japan had not been part of this uh, change of attitude. So you can still find people saying it's glorious in Japan. Uh, they obviously learned their lesson with World War II. And the situation in Germany seems to be that virtually no one there really wanted another war except Adolf Hitler if he'd been run over by a truck. Um, uh, World War II of that sort in Europe probably not, it wouldn't have happened. Whether you buy that or not, nonetheless, after World War II, uh, the uh, attitudes uh, were very much in full flower after, from, from where they had been uh, after World War I. And we now had uh, probably the most remarkable development in the history of warfare. Um, Europe and the developed world in general have basically had no significant international wars for 75 years, three quarters of a century. In fact, if you look at the history of Europe, you have to go back 2,500 years ago uh, uh, and when, when uh, uh, the word Europe was invented, and this is the longest period of that kind of peace since that time. Um, then later on, uh, as the decades went on, other countries, that less developed countries, also more or less gave up international war. So that within the last 30 years, there's only been three international wars, two of them incidentally started by the United States, uh, coming out of 9-11 in Afghanistan and in, uh, and in, in Iraq. So what we, the argument basically is we've reached a place where there's sort of a culture or a society of international peace in the sense that countries don't use, they have plenty of disagreements, uh, but they don't use uh, war as a method for solving those agreements, uh, solving those disagreements. Uh, they still do things which are war-like, but they aren't war. For example, uh, they intervene in civil wars, they launch economic sanctions, they lob cyber balloons, they poach fish, they fire across bows, they support terrorism, they continue to spy and steal secrets, sabotage and assassination still take place. Uh, they meddle in elections, and there's effort to covert regime change. But uh, all of those are at, at a fairly low level. Uh, anyway, they're nowhere near what used to be the case uh, for war. One, one example of that, and I'll close on this, um, is that um, there's been a large number of little tiny um, uh, confiscations of territory since 1945. But the people doing those, uh, there's about 70, 70 cases in which one country tried to steal a little bit of land from the other. But what has rem happened remarkably over the time is that these things have gotten smaller and smaller. So that when they do occur, they occur at very low levels. They try to take territory, or in some cases a submerged island, uh, which doesn't have any people on it and is not garrisoned. So it's, it's, in other words, they're trying to get sort of the gain of war in some sort of symbolic sense but not in the way it was held uh, previously. So that, that's the basic argument. And there's also discussion of uh, the, uh, you know, where we are now, where complacency comes in. It seems to me that basically there are no security threats uh, in the world uh, for the United States that require a large military or, for that matter, nuclear weapons. And uh, that uh, uh, dealing with Russia and China and uh, North Korea and so forth are problems, admittedly but they can almost certainly be handled uh, without having to go to war uh, using various other techniques. So let me end on that and uh, invite your questions, comments, and expressions of outrage. Okay. John, thank you so much. Um, I, I want to go back to uh, a couple of the points that you made. Uh, the first one related to stealing bits of land by one country versus another. Uh, in 1991, Saddam Hussein invaded 
the independent country of Kuwait uh, took, took the oil fields um, and it required the United States, uh, along with a number of its allies, to push uh, Iraq out of, out of Kuwait. Um, do you view that as just an exception? What, what made Kuwait um, so important that it required a, a global action? Um, just sometimes we have to make examples of other, uh, of other nations when they behave this way to show that the, you know, the upside downside of this kind of behavior needs to be reversed. How do you think of the first war of Iraq as a, a precondition for setting the stage for uh, violating the stealing a, a little bit of territory? Yeah, it was it's a very good point. That's that's the that it's very much an aberration. In fact, when Saddam Hussein uh, uh, took over Kuwait, uh, one prominent historian re referred to it as an anachronism. We just don't do stuff like that. For this whole 75 years, that's been the only case, only time when one United Nations country tried to take over another United Nations country and then incorporate it into its territory. In the olden days, before World War I, for example, that was a, you know, was a standard thing that happened in wars. Um, so it was, it, was, it was unique in that sense. And it was very surprising. Most of the Arab states, for example, thought he, wasn't, he was just bluffing as well, who wouldn't actually do it. Um, in the book, I argued that they, he probably could have been forced out without war um, he was he he'd overextended himself. He showed himself to be fairly pragmatic in a lot of ways, um, and uh, with negotiations which which George H. W. Bush totally refused to even consider, uh, war was necessary, and and uh, the result of that war was uh, several tens of thousands of people probably being killed both in Iraq and in Kuwait, and that quite possibly could have been avoided. Uh, but it is very much a, a unique kind of situation. I don't uh, when when. George H.W. Bush did it. He argued this had set a precedent for the future, but instead it was basically dealing with an aberration. I mean, in other words, even if he'd been able to keep Kuwait, there weren't a whole bunch of other countries that are going to try to do something similar in a different place. Just continuing on um, that first Iraq war for a second, um, you know, you mentioned that Hussein uh, seemed to be very pragmatic and understood that he had gone too far. Um, you know, I remember... Um, in the days that followed the initial invasion, um, we sent diplomats over to discuss it with him, and we discussed it with, the, I've got the fellow's name, who was the Secretary of, Iraq Secretary of State, um, but it, it seemed like nonsense. It seemed like they were, it, it was like com the guy was being completely impractical. Um, why do you now think that it, negotiations probably would have worked both in the, I'll call it Iraq War One and Iraq War Two, where it seemed like Hussein could have found a solution, but we were unable to. I mean, like the the, the length of time that we produced forces um, for related to you know seeking for those weapons of mass destruction was forever, and he knew he didn't have those weapons. Why, you know, why, if he was so pragmatic, why did he behave this way that ended up not both resulting in the destruction of his country and, and his own death? Yeah, the, uh, in, the, in, the, in the first case, uh, Bush, the, the first Bush, uh, simply would not engage in negotiations. You would have had to give him something. He had some little legitimate grievances with, with Kuwait, and I think the Kuwaitis, to get their country back, probably would have, would have acquiesced. Uh, instead, uh, George H.W. Bush was determined to basically humiliate him. And I think that was a very bad strategy. At any rate, it should have been tried. I don't know if it would have worked or not. Maybe it would have taken force. Um, in, in, the case of the, in, in the case of the second war, the one in 2003, um, 
the um, it is really weird, I must say, and I certainly didn't think of it. But he was being coy about having chemical weapons because he felt that if he was shown to be weak, the Iranians would attack him again. And he was using that as sort of a crypto deterrent, even though he didn't have any weapons, uh, to deter Iran from doing it. As far as I can see, nobody thought of that, including me, I have to admit, uh, including the people in intelligence and so forth. That, that, that may be why he was being coy, because he was worried about Iran, with whom he had just fought a, the, the, probably the worst international war since World War II that lasted most of the 80s. So um, that, that was why he was doing that. Uh, essentially, the argument for going into that war was with was if he was going to get if he got nuclear weapons or weapons of mass destruction, he would somehow dominate the Middle East. And it strikes me as being that argument was was uh, bizarre in many respects. He had an incredibly incompetent army, as demonstrated in both of those two wars. And the idea that he could use that or or his weaponry to cause other people to fall in line seems seems daft. Um, in the first war. Of course, he took over Kuwait, and with the result of that was not everybody said, oh, how impressive you are and how great you are, but instead they made an alliance of convenience, which included the United States, the Soviet Union, and Israel against him. If he were to do something similar later, that would be the most likely response. So consequently, he was, as, as uh, Colin Powell put it at the time, he was in his box. He was fully capable, even if he did get weapons of mass destruction, of being uh, deterred and contained, it seems to me. You know, I think you're right that since World War II, Europe has been remarkably quiet. Um, but there's been other areas of the Middle East which have been quite volatile. You just discussed the Iran-Iraq uh, debacle uh, war, but there's also uh, violence going on between Israel and its neighbors. Um, Israel had hot wars in 48, 56, 67, and 73, and then was also involved in a number of other military exercises since then. How do you think about um, the fact that there are certain areas where, you know, where developments happen and war activity is more common, in particular, uh, I'll call it Israel and its neighbors? Yeah, there's been uh, that uh, the, uh, the the dates you gave are exactly right. Namely, the end the last last war between Israel and an Arab state was in 1973, which is a very long time ago. Uh, after that, there have been sub-state groups which have been supported by Arab states, which have caused problems. So I mentioned that, but those are not wars. Those are not those are not uh, things that cause a thousand battle deaths per year between states. Uh, they are very irritating and they, they are costly. So that um, the supporting of terrorism, the supporting of undermining other governments, the United States has tried covert regime change something like 70 times since World War II, most of the time in abject failure, but at least they tried. Um, and uh, the uh, economic sanctions and other things like that are simply not war. Uh, they are, uh, and they have not escalated to, to really full-out wars with, between states. So that that but and you could say the same thing by the way not only about uh, uh, Israel and the Arab states but India and Pakistan they had three or four wars uh, up until 1971 but they have had no wars of uh, that sort since that time in, in real international wars there's been border conflicts there's been kerfuffles uh, there's been and some of them have, have uh, really you know there's been some loss of life but compared to the old days this is much milder. So when I'm, I'm not saying that everything is hearts and flowers, <laughs> quite the reverse. Uh, there's still plenty of uh, skullduggery going around the edges, 
but it's basically been short of international war. And the argument basically is that uh, countries may use some of these methods to try to, uh, to deal with their differences, uh, cyber attacks and things like that, but they simply aren't wars. Uh, they aren't international wars, as, as would have been the case in the past. So that's what the change is. Essentially, uh, countries have pretty much come to the point of saying we're not going to use old-fashioned international war, which is, of course, the standard of war forever. Europe, for example, used to be the, the most warlike continent in the world by far. There are periods of time in which the whole centuries went by, and there wouldn't there be maybe two years in which there wasn't an international war going on somewhere in Europe. Um, and so reaching a point where basically we just simply don't use that, uh, but we still have plenty of problems. Uh, an analogy might be with dueling. Young men of that social class that used to duel all the time uh, still have plenty of testosterone. They have plenty of disagreements. They have plenty of ways of, of undermining the other guy. But it doesn't even occur to them to use a direct attack, which would be a, a duel, to solve the problem. And that would be somewhat similar. Everything is not peaceful. Everything is not perfect by any means. It's not cherubs and cooing doves, um, but it's a lot better than in the olden times, it seems to me. I want to uh, go to an example. Uh, okay, you want to ask a question? Yes, I did want to ask a question. John, um, what happened after World War One that changed people's attitudes? Was it just... Was it just the horror of that war? But many wars have been pretty horrible. I wonder if there was something in the modern sensibility that that uh, made people look at it differently. Yeah, it's a, that's a really good question, and I, I, I'd like to have a really great answer for it, but I, I can try. Um, but you're absolutely right. Uh, there's been a lot of horrible wars. The Greek and Tro Trojan War, for example, mm -hmm. talk about stupid. Um, you know, was fought over an errant wife, lasted 10 years, and ended up with the total annihilation of one of the combatants, namely the city of Troy. All the men were killed, the women sold, raped and sold into slavery or killed, uh, and the place was burned to the ground. They didn't even find it for, they couldn't even find out where it was for about two millennia. So there's, in, in, in the, in the uh, 30 years war in uh, the 17th century, uh, the general assumption was that about 80 or 90 percent of all the Germans had been killed in that war. So there have been plenty of wars like that in the past, um, both equally stupid and equally destructive in terms of the overall population. Uh, what, the way I explain it, and I obviously can't prove it because we can't do an experiment and run the history over again, is that uh, beginning in 1889, for the first time in history, there was organized anti-war um, uh, protest. Uh, there's been plenty of people who thought war was a dumb, dumb idea. There's, you know, there's philosophers sitting on rocks, and there's the Quakers and so forth. But it wasn't until about 1889, about 20 years, 25 years before the war, uh, that there was an anti-war movement. It was generally derided as being uh, effeminate and cowardly and trivial and so forth by the war, war people, but it was there. And it was gathering a certain amount of momentum, some major industrialists, uh, we're joining in, such as Andrew Carnegie, who founded the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, uh, and uh, Alfred Nobel, who founded the Nobel Peace Prize. They're holding society meetings. Uh, they're trying to get some governments online. Uh, but they're basically derided successfully as basically a, a sort of a bizarre um, uh, 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 trivial gadfly movement. And I think what happened was, and World War I came along, and it reminded people what war, really continental war, horrible war, 
could be again. And even if it wasn't the worst war in history, um, it was enough to certainly uh, cause people to think hard about it. So essentially, it seems to me that after World War I, they were receptive to the ideas that had been burbling around from the peace movement before the war. In other words, what the peace movement did is get this, get, at least get these ideas on the table, even if they were derided by people, uh, which they were, uh, the majority certainly, uh, and seemed to be sort of a flaky fringe group. After the war, their ideas were embraced. It was, in other words, an idea whose time had come. So I sort of see the two things, the, the this horrible destructive war, plus having an alternative on the ground, on the table, which uh, people were embracing. I want to bring in uh, one of your previous books as well called The Atomic Obsession. And in that book, uh, you argue that um, nuclear proliferation isn't that bad. I'm wondering, do you, there are some scholars who believe that the lack of European war for the previous 75 years may reflect the fact that we had two nuclear powers pointing uh, their weapons at each other and making uh, the cost of war too high, and that therefore uh, we couldn't wage it so it wasn't fought. Um, we did see some um, smaller wars, regional wars, where we, we, we fought through agents. Um, think of the Vietnam War, the Korean War, where the two superpowers wouldn't fight each other but would, would get involved in any case. How do you think about the role of nuclear weapons as the means and cause for the uh, lack of developed world engaging in warfare? Yeah, I think mostly they're irrelevant. I've been arguing this for a long time, and we'll have to see if I can get some more, more people on my bandwagon. But um, the, the, there's an intent, and I talk about this in the Stupidity of War book, there's tons of evidence now that the Soviet Union never in a million gajillion years wanted to do anything like World War II again, much less, obviously, World War II plus nuclear weapons. The country had been massively destroyed in that war. Um, and everybody, every family had lost a family member, um, and uh, the the war was uh, and and and, uh, and furthermore, they subscribed to an ideology, uh, communism, international communism, Leninism, Marxism, which basically said we're going to take over the world. But it was not by force, but it was through or not by international war, but through revolution, subversion, um, and 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 uh, various kinds of of pressure. So I don't think it was ever really remotely in the cards. Both sides uh, simply did not want to re repeat an international war. Uh, and the fact that there were nuclear weapons only, you know, embellished that. It was like, you know, if you, you, you jump from a, a fifth-story window, it's probably a lot less horrible to think about than jumping from a 50th-story window. But if you enjoy life, you don't do either one. Uh, and, and, and also the issue about, about uh, nuclear proliferation a remarkably small number of countries have actually gotten them, nine. And there were predictions it'd be 20, 30, 40 at various times, like from John Kennedy in the 1960s. Uh, and I think the main reason is that they don't do it, they aren't, they aren't very, very helpful. Um, and a major problem from my standpoint, it basically, so basically I'm sort of complacent about that problem. Uh, that is, if countries get them, they're just wasting their time and money. If Iran gets them, it's a waste of time and money. North Koreans are wasting the time and money. They don't really need it. Uh, but they won't use them overall. And since World War II, there have, of course, been zero people killed by nuclear explosions. But there have been hundreds of thousands of people killed by efforts to stop proliferation, most dramatically in Iraq, where stopping proliferation, i.e. Saddam Hussein forgetting the weapons, was the major motivation for the war. 
and the number of people who have died as a result of the American invasion in Iraq is about 100 times higher than the total number of people killed in 9-11, two, two or 300,000 people or, or upwards. So it seems to me that proliferation is basically not a very good idea. If we encourage people from not doing it, we'll be doing them a favor because they'd be wasting their money and time and effort and scientific expertise. Uh, but it's not a monumental problem. It's not a, 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 a severe security problem. Certainly not one worth killing hundreds of thousands of people over. John, thank you. Uh, we're going to move on to our second speaker now, Louis Alexander, who is Chief U.S. Economist and Head of Fixed Income Research for the Americas at Nemours Securities. Uh, Lou will be talking about inflation. Fire away, Lou. Thanks very much. Um, I'm going to make three broad points. Uh, the first point is that this question matters. In particular, it's very important for financial markets. The second point I want to make is inflation in the short run is going up, and people need to be prepared for that. But the third point is um, this is a temporary thing, we think. This is not the beginning of a new sort of inflationary year. So the broad arc of inflation in the U.S. has been inflation accelerated in the mid-1960s. It accelerated through the 1970s. The turning point was really Volcker's appointment to the Fed in 79. During the 1980s and 1990s, inflation was essentially trending lower uh, under the Fed's guidance. But since around 2000, inflation has moved up and down over short periods of time, but the trend has been very stable. During the 70s, 80s, and 90s, the Fed had to be focusing on containing inflation. But since 2000, the Fed has been able to focus more on stabilizing output. This shift in the Fed's focus has had a major impact on financial assets. Since roughly 2000, stock and bond prices have been negatively correlated. During this period when something bad happened, something that was bad for economic activity and corporate earnings, the Fed tended to lower interest rates and vice versa, hence the negative correlation between stock and bond prices. Now, a negative correlation between the two primary asset classes lowers risk in diversified portfolios. Before 2000, stock and bond prices tended to move together. The shift in the stock bond correlation has contributed to the long-term trend of declining risk premium across a wide range of assets. In the future, if in the future the Fed has to focus more on containing inflation and consequently is less free to stabilize output, risk premium are likely to have to rise. This, I would argue, is why financial markets are so sensitive to this question why they're so sensitive to the prospect of inflation. Now, in the short run, inflation is definitely going up. On Wednesday, we are going to get new data for consumer prices for the month of April. We expect that the rate of inflation, excluding food and energy, measured over 12 months, and the data released on Wednesday is going to be 2.4%. That's up from just 1.3% in February. While the pace of this increase may seem alarming, it's important to recognize that it's being driven in part by what happened last year. Last spring, as the economy um, locked down, many prices fell sharply. Then from June through August, uh, they recovered substantially. The sharp declines from the height of the lockdown period in essentially April and May of last year are starting to drop out of the 12-month window. Once we get out, get beyond these sharp swings of April to August last year, we think uh, the trend in inflation is going to move back to around 2%. But while the acceleration we are seeing um, right now is to some degree a reflection of what happened last year, 
It's also a reflection on things that are happening right now. We expect the month-on-month -month change uh, in core prices to be four-tenths in the month of, May, month of April alone. Obviously, if you annualize at that rate, uh, that's uh, around 5% in an annual rate. We obviously don't think that's going to continue, but that's an indication of what's going on right now. This current surge reflects a variety of things. First of all, COVID increased the demand for many things. Um, that surge in demand has stretched existing supply chains beyond capacity. One example is semiconductors. Uh, COVID increased the demand for basic PCs. But semiconductors are also now critical inputs to many, many consumer products. Um, in addition, there have been some um, odd things like bad weather in Texas and a drought in Taiwan that have disrupted critical parts of the semiconductor supply chain. The bottom line is a lack of supply of basic semiconductors is um, constraining production across a variety of sectors, everything from core IT goods to cars. Um, now, a second factor that's driving up inflation right now is demand in COVID-affected sectors, such as travel, is now recovering. We expect the recovery in prices in those sectors in coming quarters, and that's going to be part of this near-term surge in inflation. And finally, aggregate demand is just growing very rapidly right now. Uh, that is because the concerns, uh, as the concerns over COVID fade, um, you're seeing a kind of opening up, and that's generating a surge in aggregate demand. But also, there's obviously been significant policy support uh, for both monetary policy and, importantly, fiscal policy. All of those things are generating the surge. Now, while inflation is going up in the short run, I do want to emphasize that we think that this is not a break of the pattern we've seen over the last 20 years. In other words, we expect this burst of inflation to be temporary. Why do we think that? Well, first of all, the primary factors that are driving up inflation right now are likely to prove temporary. For example, the shortages of semiconductors we think is probably going to be addressed by the fall. Um, this is more extreme than we've seen um, in the semiconductor industry for a while, uh, but we have seen this pattern uh, in the past. The industry is actually pretty flexible. Another element which is important to our outlook is the fact that we think fiscal support is going to wane quickly. That really reflects the fact that all the fiscal support that's been provided up until now is going to spend out incredibly quickly. So for example, the 1.9 um, uh, trillion American recovery plan that Congress passed just a few weeks ago, um, CBO estimates that 1.2 trillion of the 1.9 is going to spend out before the end of September. What that means is we are on a very steep cliff in terms of um, that support waning going forward. And in spite of everything that's going to be done from here going forward, that stuff is likely to spend out over a much longer period of time and will just soften the blow. Um, another important part of our judgment is that we think that the factors that have contained inflation over the last 20 years are likely to persist. Um, that includes things like the shift of the economy to being focused on things like IT-related services and the flexibility that that brings. We are no longer a goods-dominated economy, uh, and that services-dominated economy, particularly IT services, is just fundamentally more flexible. Globalization, while we think it's going to be reduced to a degree, is largely, we think, going to be maintained. Um, moreover, I would argue the supply of low-wage labor 
um, is something that is going to continue to help contain pressures. And while, yes, there is a transition going on in China, we think places like India and ultimately potentially Africa can be a substitute. In this context, uh, we think inflation expectations are going to go up a bit, but we think they're going to be, remain broadly consistent with the Fed's objectives. And that means the Fed uh, can continue to focus on stabilizing output. Um, I think it's worth remembering uh, that in the two years before COVID, inflation was actually falling in spite of the fact that U.S. labor markets was very tight, uh, in spite of the fact that we had very strong aggregate demand supported by fiscal stimulus because of the Trump tax cuts, and even in the place in, even with the supply disruptions that came from Trump's trade policy. So we are in for a burst of inflation, but I don't think it's something that's going to persist. I'll stop there. Thanks, Lou. Um, my first question relates to a conversation we had on this program with Charles Goodhart. Charles thought that one of the reasons we had global deflation was the fact that rural China moved to urban China and all of their efforts came online and they sold goods at really cheap prices. Um, but that was like a one-time event in his world. He mentioned the possibility of India and Africa helping out just like you did, but he thought that that would take a long time and he wasn't so sure how that would work out. How do you think about Goodhart's thesis that the, the Chinese deflationary uh, phenomena may have run its course? So I'd say a couple things about that. First of all, that has been a factor we've been dealing with for a long time. So if you look at the arc of this, you can make an argument that low-wage manufacturing production started shifting out of China a decade ago. This is not something that is particularly new at this moment. So you've seen places like Vietnam, Indonesia, Philippines already replacing the low-end part of that spectrum. And this has been Chinese policy for a while. So that's one point. I, I would acknowledge that India is different from China in the respect that China had an overt policy of trying to grow through exports um, and or essentially organizing their economy around that. Moreover, the effectiveness of governance in China is different than what it is in India. And it is in some sense a puzzle why India hasn't emerged sooner as a more viable source uh, of, or a viable location for low-wage manufacturing. I think India is starting to move in that direction. Moreover, I do think the shock of COVID and, in addition, the protests you've seen around agriculture in India are the kinds of things that can prompt India to move in that direction. An awful lot of the policy flexibility in India actually exists not at the national level but at the state level, and I, I think there is potential for that to be accelerated by all of this. So I acknowledge the point that it's not quite like China, but I find it very hard to think about a world where, frankly, immigration is the problem it is, to think of that as a fundamentally a world of not enough low-wage labor. I look at what's going on in the Mediterranean. I look at what's going on in the southern border of the U.S., and it just doesn't seem to me like we live in a world where there aren't an awful lot of people that are prepared to work at wage rates that are very low 
by the standards of the advanced world. And that's partly why I kind of don't buy that argument. Let's talk about um, fiscal policy for a second. Uh, the Biden administration has suggested that they want to go big. Uh, your first argument is that they're going to go big, but it's going to kind of stall out after September. He, he's mentioned he wants to do an infrastructure bill. Um, he's mentioned, I, I actually lost track of the number of trillions at one point that he was proposing in his first 100 days going forward. Um, first, do you think that any of those bills will end up passing and that money being spent? Um, you know, we have very, very loose monetary policy. How, how do you think if we start to see some inflation numbers that they would uh, slow that down? Do you think they would uh, potentially cut back on the fiscal policy? Would they try to raise taxes to, to slow the economy down as another approach, but continue to spend? Uh, or third, do you think they would raise interest rates to, to slow the economy down if, in fact, they went for, if they do go big on the stimulus? So it's important to think about the timing of the spending and what's already been done. Over the last 13 months, we have the Congress has passed $5 trillion in support for the economy, the vast majority of which is going to spend out before the end of this year. Now, what Biden has proposed in the two additional bills he's proposed is an additional $4 trillion in spending. But that spending is scheduled to spend out over eight years. And moreover, Biden is talking about paying for it with higher taxes. The $5 trillion that we've already done was not paid for. And so the difference between that and what we're going to have going forward is, number one, it's $4 trillion over eight years as opposed to $5 trillion over 18 months. And second of all, there's going to be some significant part of taxes that are going to go along with this. When you think about fiscal policy and inflation, people often try and make the link between the, what happened between Johnson's Great Society and the Vietnam War in terms of the fiscal stimulus at the end of the 60s that contributed to the liftoff of the great inflation. And it is certainly true that that fiscal policy was part of that story. But I would argue the right historical analogy for where we are in fiscal policy is not 1967, it's 1945. Like the downside of this incredible burst of fiscal spending that's already been done is more important than what Biden is proposing. And it is more like what the US economy had to deal with in 1945 at the end of the incredible burst of spending that happened during World War II. Now, I personally don't think he's gonna get all of that. Um, our view is the total spending we're going to get is more like $3 trillion over 10 years. We think it's prob we're probably going to get about a trillion in taxes. Look, a lot of this is controversial. This is all going to play out. Um, but the bottom line is I think people are miss – if you focus only on what's coming to be passed without thinking about the impact of what's already in place, I think you're sort of, mi you're sort of missing the story. Um, I do think the Fed is prepared to tighten policy if need be, um, and um, I don't think anybody should doubt that. Now, the negative effects on asset markets will come if that happens, um, but I, I'm, as you can tell, I'm less worried about this over the longer run. 
Can you explain inflationary expectations for a second, how they uh, how they're influenced by short-term inflation, how they're organized, how they wind up in employment contracts and in consumer behavior. What what drives long-term inflationary expectations, and how did Volcker crush them? And then why do you think if we have uh, a near-term burst of inflation over two, three, four years, that it will not really affect uh, behavior to affect long-term inflationary expectations? So the first thing I have to say is I'm not sure I have a very good understanding of any of that. Um, and as much as it is central to the way economists think about inflation, I think it's fair to say that our understanding of how people actually form their expectations isn't all that deep. One of the things that is empirically true is that during the great inflation, Inflation expectations were, number one, very sensitive to actual inflation. So part of what drove you the dynamics in the 1970s was oil price spikes that drove up actual inflation very quickly got embedded into inflation expectations. And that feedback loop was very much part of what went on there. Um, it is also, I think, generally believed that the Fed's willingness to accommodate that during the second half of the 60s and the 1970s sort of reinforced that logic. In some sense, if you ask, how did Volcker change things? It was by demonstrating that they were that the Fed was prepared to cause a very deep recession to break it that changed the way people thought about it. And what you observed after Volcker this took time to, to manifest itself, but by 2000, it was clearly there. Inflation expectations are no longer particularly sensitive to actual inflation. So part of the big change to that stabilization over the last 20 years has been inflation expectations are simply nowhere near as sensitive to actual inflation as they used to be. And that that stability is something that the Fed has counted on. Now, I think the Fed believes, and there's certainly plenty of theoretical arguments that support this, that what they say about inflation matters. Um, and obviously what they do about inflation matters as well. Um, and so the Fed is very sensitive around what they say about um, uh, inflation. Recently, they've been more worried about inflation being too low than being too high. And so partly what they've been trying to do over the last several years is reinforce the notion that their views on inflation are symmetric, and so that if inflation is too low, they will aggressively work against that. It now looks like they, you know, that's not the problem, at least for the near term. Um, and so they've kind of backed off that rhetoric a little bit. I think while... You know, I certainly believe that that all is part of the story, and that's part of the story for how Volcker succeeded. Um, I'd be lying to you if I told you um, we knew all that. Um, we had good micro-evidence that supported that. In terms of how does that get into wages, how does that get into prices, again, there's sort of theoretical work on that. There's the, the, the actual micro-evidence of that is pretty sparse. 
it certainly is true that if you look at how businesses um, set prices in the 70s, it did seem to be related to broad measures of inflation expectations. Frankly, for the last 20 years, it's been hard to find that evidence. So I, I would I would acknowledge you know, that. Sorry, go ahead. I was just to say, you know, when Volcker quelled inflationary expectations, as you said, by causing that massive recession in, in 1981, 1982, uh, that was quite costly um, for the nation to, to go and have that loss of, of labor and, and GDP. And so it seems that if, if we do get a high, a greater inflation, if, we, if there's a rise in inflation expectations, there's a real cost to do so because you have to have that um, radical uh, increase in rates to cause that uh, catastrophic economic activity to re-engage inflation expectations at a lower level. What, how does the Fed think about that problem? Is it, if, we're, if it's so costly to raise inflation expectations, why don't they bite it in the bud as soon as it rears its ugly head? Because the alternative, the flip side of that is costly as well. So I, I think one of the things that the Fed would argue very strongly is the slow recovery after the global financial crisis a decade ago was related in part to the fact that because inflation was very low, nominal interest rates were very low, and they didn't actually have a lot of tools to stimulate the economy. We lived through what was a very weak recovery, which had over time a large cost in terms of foregone income um, because of that, precisely because inflation was so low. And part of the reason the Fed is focused on making sure that inflation expectations are not too low is to prevent those sorts of costs. And frankly, um, you know, given what we've just been through, um, I don't think that's an unreasonable thing to be concerned about. You talk about how costly the Volcker recession was. In fact, the economic analysis of that period is relative to what economists thought going into that recession, it was actually, the deflation was actually less costly than people had assumed. Part of the reason policy wasn't more aggressive in the 70s was people were worried about it. Now, what I think is, I think the right way to think about this is, if I'm wrong, and inflation expectations start to look like they are becoming unanchored, I believe very strongly that the Fed is going to react to that quite aggressively. I think the reason that they're not talking about that right now is they simply don't believe it's going to happen. There's not a lot of evidence that it is. And I think that the, their strong sense is that bias you saw in Fed policy in the 80s and the 90s, which we're all used to because that's what we grew up with, is simply not needed now. It hasn't been needed for the last 20 years. Now, if, it's, if inflation expectations start going up in a way that looks like it's um, sustainable and durable, they'll react that way. Lou, thank you very much. Uh, we're going to go on to our next speaker, who is Kay Heimowitz. Uh, Kay joins us from the Manhattan Institute. Uh, she has recently written a new book called The New Brooklyn, What It Takes to Bring a City Back. Kay, take us, take us to the borough of Brooklyn. Thanks, Larry. My husband and I were both baby boomers raised in comfortable suburbs, but in 1982, we bought a brownstone in Park Slope, Brooklyn. 
Our families and childhood friends thought we were crazy. At the time, the neighborhood was mostly Italian, Irish, and Puerto Rican working class, people who had once worked in nearby factories or the borough's historical Navy Yard. Many of those factories and the Navy Yard itself were already closed by the time we got to the area. Park Slope was looking seedy. Many of the peeling brownstones had been turned into boarding houses and SROs. Crime was a problem, too. You only had to look at the number of houses with wrought iron bars on the lower floor windows to see that. We were gentrifiers, though no one knew the term at the time. The area was attracting a steady stream of gentrifiers, that is, college-educated men and women, most but not all of them white. Within 15 years, the stream had turned into such a torrent that the newcomers were spreading beyond the borough's brownstone neighborhoods into decayed industrial areas along the East River, like Williamsburg and Greenpoint. They came because they liked the lively and walkable streets, the sense of history and culture. They came most of all, though, because as the capital of the growing knowledge economy, New York City was where the high-paying and cool jobs were. That's where they could find the jobs in finance, law, management, media, and arts they had been educated for. Some years later, they joined an exploding design and technology sector. Well-traveled and cosmopolitan, gentrifiers' tastes for ethnic food, cocktails, microbeers, coffee, music, and galleries was adding new jobs and transformed the deli and dive bar-filled working-class streetscape. By the early years of the new millennium, Brooklyn had become one of the coolest brands on the planet. You could find Brooklyn t-shirts, baseball caps, cafes, and cocktail bars everywhere from Tokyo to Amsterdam to Sydney. Now, as many of you probably know, a lot of Brooklyn native, natives, and ironically many of the newcomers themselves, loathed gentrification. Even though early on real estate developers had anticipated Brooklyn's boom and built condos and renovated factories and warehouses to house the new arrivals, they couldn't keep up with demand. Rents were skyrocketing, and so were skylines. Despite New York's uniquely extensive public housing, rent control, and stabilization policies, lower-income folks couldn't move into once affordable and familiar neighborhoods. Those who remained were resentful when the diners and laundromats turned into $5 coffee shops and sushi bars. As gentrifiers moved into neighborhoods like Bedford-Stuyvesant and Fort Greene, with a long black history, gentrification became a racial flashpoint. White gentrifiers were described as imperialists, destroying native culture and people. Social scientists studying the trends were unable to find much evidence that locals were being forced out of their homes in significant numbers. Moreover, racial polarization prevented people from seeing how much a new wave of immigrants from China, Jamaica, Dominican Republic, and elsewhere were adding to housing pressures and also changing Brooklyn's identity. It may not be entirely comfortable to point out, but immigrant Brooklyn turned out to be symbiotic with gentrified Brooklyn. Many low-skilled immigrants made a living servicing the gentrifiers in restaurant kitchens as babysitters, building contractors, and the like. 
So what does COVID mean for what I call in my book's title, The New Brooklyn? The big question is whether New York City, uh, where about one in five people are below the poverty line, will be able to hold on to a mobile, middle, and upper middle class. I'm watching two areas concern, among others, crime and education. And the picture for crime at this moment is not particularly encouraging. Shootings spiked 97% in 2020 over in 2019, and they're up 83.3% uh, uh, from 2019 for the first four months of 2021. The numbers are still nothing like the worst of times, times in the 1970s, but they are concerning. Park Slope and other gentrified neighborhoods remain largely free of violent crime, but people who moved there in the past 15 years are used to not worrying much about muggings, break-ins, or stolen car parts. That appears to be changing. Park Slope is also a very progressive neighborhood, and residents have become highly suspicious of police. I don't see a particularly good outcome there. Regarding education, despite a miserable overall record, New York City schools have had some bright spots over the past decades. There are some very successful charters, some rigorous neighborhood schools here and there, and for those who get in our famous exam high schools. The city's middle class uses these outlets in an otherwise bleak system. But racial tension makes the future of these alternatives, as well as the future of gifted and talented programs, very uncertain. The political establishment talks increasingly about anti-racism and desegregation as the solution. But I seem, they seem to forget that already only 15% of New York City public school children are white. I fear a toxic feedback loop as the middle class leaves New York. Their taxes foregone, the city will have less tax revenue, resulting in dirtier streets and parks, larger school classes, more crime and disorder, all of which will lead more people who can do so to leave for greener pastures. The exodus may just gain momentum, and so will the problems. Uh, and then we're back to the 1970s. Uh, let me just end with this one little comment. Many New Yorkers complained about gentrification, but they may be, learn to be careful about what they wish for. Thanks, Kay. Um, I want to start my first question before your timeline, which was um, when Brooklyn fell apart. And it, yeah. it was, I think, related to exactly the, the things you were talking about uh, coming forward, crime, education, and jobs. So. Um, First, the jobs went away, uh, the closing of the naval yard, the closing of the factories. Uh, you had white ethnic uh, it classes all over different communities in Brooklyn, and they fleed uh, when crime and educational opportunities uh, declined as well. First, I think they fleed to the island, and then many white ethnics ended up fleeing the state of New York completely. Um, and then a, a complete reversal in the, second, in the story that you tell, where job opportunities arose, uh, they moved in, crime fell, um, and it appeared that they could educate children there uh, peacefully. Um, which story, uh, is this, are we just going to go back and repeat that previous story, you think? And if not, why not? Well, of course, that, that is the fear that some of us have, um, uh, particularly as we watch the crime rate go up. 
uh, and we watch um, some new um, new ideas about how to how to solve some of New York's problems that have been tried before and have quite frankly failed. Um, the I want to emphasize that Brooklyn, um, before uh, I got there, uh, was a work, white working class. Um, not only white, of course, but uh, the area that the brownstone areas was mostly white working class. Uh, these were immigrants who came to uh, New York because that's where their uh, industrial jobs were. Brooklyn was an industrial city for for over a hundred years and a very powerful and successful one. Uh, there was a lot of pride about that uh, Navy Yard. It's where the uh, some of the most important ships for World War II were built, um, and uh, it was a it was a place with a lot of spirit and and self and self pride. That started to change as those factories closed, as you said, Larry, uh, as the Navy Yard closed, and as you know. But this is a reflection of what was happening in the broader economy. Uh, I think that the story of Brooklyn very much parallels the story of uh, deindustrialization uh, and the uh, problems that followed with that uh, when that happened uh, in the country at large. Uh, what we had, though, in Brooklyn was this turnaround because of a back-to-the-city movement of young middle-class uh, singles and families mostly, I think, because New York City was the center of this new emerging knowledge economy. Just, just following that out, um, I want to apply some of the ideas of Jane Jacobs, uh, where she would emphasize the role of people walking around on the streets, mm -hmm. um, older women watching out to make sure that there was no crime on the streets, and just have, having active thoroughfares. I think one of the most amazing things, um, I too uh, lived in Brooklyn in the 80s uh, for five years, and I, I was um, amazed at how, it's, how much it's improved since then. You mentioned these gentrifiers and how they've changed the street, how they're opening up new cafes, new breweries, uh, new stores, and, and living and, and engaging in that community. If crime returns... Uh, or, they, or there's fear that they can't be on the street. Um, how, will that, how will that spiral uh, in the reverse direction? Is, how does the, the presence of street behavior uh, change the dynamics of the community? Well, for one thing, people stay inside more. So you don't get as much street life. Um, people are more worried about going out uh, later, later in the evening. I mean, you know, when I first moved to, to Brooklyn, uh, you didn't want to be on the subway if you were a woman alone uh, anywhere past, anywhere after dark, really, uh, unless you absolutely had to. Uh, and I remember often walking from the subway back to my house and walking in the middle of the street uh, as a way to make, make to feel a little safer, but, you know, because there are not as many places that you could somebody could hide uh, behind a stoop or something like that. Um, so you know that means people just stay inside more and turn more to their backyards. One of the reasons that I liked 
uh, Brooklyn when I first got there was that there was a lot of stoop life, and that was the old old Brooklyn. People sat on their stoop um, and chatted with neighbors. Uh, the kids played. My, my son used to play touch football in the street, believe it or not. Uh, there wasn't quite as much traffic uh, at the time. And um, that kind of thing really starts to die down um, when you have more people uh, fr- uh, frightened of what's happening. In addition, remember that no, nobody is more affected by street crime than people who, working in retail um, and uh, who own small businesses along the commercial streets. Uh, and I was surprised to see after COVID, not that we're completely after COVID, but you know, as, as COVID uh, started to uh, pick up steam, we didn't lose that many retail, that much retail on our commercial streets. So the street uh, still was lively, uh, not, not like it had, had been, but there was still a lot of uh, people around. Um, and that's still the case. Um, and, and by the way, there are new stores opening up, new restaurants, new bars. Uh, it's, kind of, it's kind of surprising how fast that's happened. Uh, and many of them are doing pretty well. So that means they're feeling confident. But, you know, what happens when one of your um, cashiers is held up at gunpoint, you know, or or where, you know, you, the um, theft in your store, uh, in your bodega, just becomes so out of control that you, um, uh, you, can close, or, you know, you're tempted to leave or to close up shop. When we first moved down, uh, along Fifth Avenue, which is now one of our premier shopping areas and um, uh, uh, very hip and lots of small businesses there. But when we first moved in there, uh, Fifth Avenue had a lot of liquor stores, but they were enclo- the cashiers were enclosed in little uh, plexiglass barriers because uh, they had been robbed so much. Um, so, you know, people do endure stuff like that, but a lot of middle class people who have more flexibility uh, are not going to put up with it for very long. Well, there was this meme that uh, where you want to live is you want to live in highly dense urban environments. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for, particularly for kids who grew up in the suburbs, that was what was cool and that was, that was the future. Um, I'm hearing now from my buddies in the suburbs, particularly the suburbs of Chicago where I live, um, that the real estate market is booming, that there's like 12, mm-hmm. 12 families in the yard for an open house, each outbidding the other for houses in the suburb. And maybe the meme of, of living in the city life um, is changing. And I don't know if it's because of Zoom and the uh, non-requirements for having to go downtown, if it's school, if it's crime. What... Is the bloom off the rose on living in a dense urban environment? Is suburban living uh, making a comeback? I think the bloom is off the rose, particularly for families with children. I think that we may see a lot of young, recent college grads still moving into places like Brooklyn and Chicago. Uh, Like I said, that's where the jobs are. And they tend to not be quite as worried about crime as uh, as we uh, as older people are and as people with children are uh you know in fact there's a little bit of romance around the you know the risky streets and the grit and all of that 
So I, I think that we may still see uh, a lot of young people moving in, if they can afford it. That's another big question that I didn't go into it during my talk about housing and the price of housing. But I think if they, um, uh, they, they may be moving in, I do believe that uh, people with children are going to be looking a little bit differently at the city than they used to. And we, look, if you're a, a young family in New York City, young middle class family, you're putting up with a lot of stuff um, the, all the time. The school system has to be, there, as I mentioned, there's a lot of bright spots and it was possible. I don't know if it still will be to find schools that were operating pretty well um, in in a lot of areas. I don't, um, you know, but it took a tremendous amount of negotiation and applications and just a lot of headaches. Uh, think of how much easier it is to be in a suburb where the school the schools are just known to be pretty good, and you don't have to think about where where to apply and how to get your child in and who who knows about this school or that school? It's uh, it's all pretty pretty clear. So I think that the school parents of uh, school age children are going to find the suburbs much more appealing. Uh, by, I didn't even mention the the question of space, but um, as you know, in in a dense city, you're going to have to learn to live with a much smaller apartment. Uh, and during COVID, uh, we've learned that if we were, are working at home at all, and I know uh, you mentioned before that more, pe more people are going back to the office now, but I, my impression is that uh, there are going to be a lot more people, at least part-time at home. You need more space. You can't have the kids bouncing off the walls while you're in, uh, on a business call. Uh, you have to find ways to um, expand your space, and the way to do that in New York City is to get out of New York City, really. Can I ask a question? Sure enough. Go ahead. Yeah, this is John Mueller. Uh, would you talk more about the rise of crime, which is obviously pretty spectacular over a very short period of time? Is it possible this is just a blip, or is it likely to continue to escalate? And what's the causes of it, as far as you can see? Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, this is a much debated question. Um, I, the people at the Manhattan Institute, and I think uh, they're right, uh, see this as a response to a lot of um, um, hostility towards the police and uncertainty about what their job is or what they're allowed to do. Uh, some of that uncertainty was necessary. I have no question. I'll, I'll disagree with that at all. But I think when police step back, yeah, you're going to see more crime. Uh, and uh, you know, I should mention, though, John, um, that the crime, the violent crime that we're seeing in New York, and I gather in Chicago, too, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal, uh, I guess yesterday, on this, uh, is confined to uh, certain neighborhoods, mostly black neighborhoods, some Hispanic as well. Uh, and that was sort of the case in the 70s as well. Uh, but the problem is that when you, violent crime might be, might be somewhat limited to those areas, but it does spill over uh, in terms of disorder and uh, just a general sense of, of menace. And there is enough there are enough stories on the subways. 
of things happening, of people being pushed on the tracks, of uh, uh, there's a lot of uh, homeless who are uh, probably mentally disturbed, who are make, make riding the subway extremely um, nerve-wracking for, um, well, at least for, like I feel that way, and I think a lot of people do. Uh, so uh, that's my view. That has to do with the policing. But I'm sure that you know, COVID, and just a sense of just this, of uh, routines disrupted, uh, schools and programs closed, had to have an, uh, an impact as, as well. Uh, whether the police can get this under control as they did in the 90s is an open question. I think that they're not going to be allowed much um, much leeway there. I think it's good. there's going to be a lot of federal control of police departments, um, consent decrees, and that kind of thing. And uh, I, I'm just not so sure. I should say also, I mentioned Chicago before. Chicago... Um, New York's numbers are going much higher than they were just a few years ago, but Chicago is completely awful, out of control. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's much, much worse um, than, <laughs> than than New York at this point. It could get worse in New York as well. We also, I don't know uh, the numbers on Chicago, but uh, you know, New York is much more of an immigrant city. Um, than it used to be. You know, when we first moved in, it felt more like black, uh, maybe Puerto Rican, and white, and, and that was that was it. It's it's no longer like that. Um, and immigrants don't tend to uh, commit much crime. So I think we had that going for us uh, during those years that crime was going down. Also. Okay. Thank you. Uh, we're going to move on to our next speaker, John Levy. Uh, John is going to speak to us about dinner parties and meeting influential people. He is an author of a book that's coming out, I think, in two days uh, called You're Invited, The Art and Science of Cultivating Influence. John Levy, go ahead. Larry, thank you so much. Uh, So some of you might know this, but for more than a decade now, I've spent my time doing something absolutely ridiculous. I would invite 12 people at a time to my home and they had to cook me dinner with an additional twist. They weren't allowed to even say what they did professionally or even give their last names. When they sat down to eat, we'd play a game where they'd guess what everybody does professionally around them. And then they'd find out they're sitting with a Nobel laureate, an eight-time Olympian, an editor-in-chief of a major magazine, an executive from a Fortune 500 company, and even an occasional princess. Uh, Over the years, I've hosted over 2,000 people at 227 dinners in 10 cities and three countries. And what I'm really proud of is that it formed into a community in time. And that community has actually ended up doing a lot of good. Uh, We've raised a lot of money for social causes and brought awareness to major issues. Uh, But when I started this, I had no idea um, really how much people needed it. And... As I was researching this new book, You're Invited, I came across some pretty startling information. Uh, You see, in 1985, the average American had just about three friends besides family. By 2004, that was down to just about two. Now, I know we love to blame social media and technology, but frankly, this is before much of that took hold. 
Uh, the real culprit is probably people moving more often for work. And every time they move, they reset their social circles. Now, that in itself is just concerning. But what became even more upsetting was that when you look at the greatest predictor of human longevity, it's not doing that papaya cleanse your friend recommended or eating lots of kale. Uh, number two is actually having close social ties. And number one is social integration, feeling like you're part of a community, that you have an experience of belonging. The wildest thing is that research by Paul J. Zak actually found that you can predict company stock value, employee sick days, and even profitability based on the level of trust or even oxytocin in people's bloodstreams. Fundamentally, human beings have this need to belong. Now, during the pandemic, this has probably gotten significantly worse. We keep hearing about how people are lonelier and more isolated than ever. Unfortunately, we're also really confused about what actually causes us to connect build trust, and even develop a sense of belonging. And I'll give you a few examples. You see, the first stage in any of this would be to be able to connect with people. And in American culture, when we hear, oh, you need to build more relationships, the automatic response is you need to go network. Now, research by Francesca Gino at Harvard Business School literally found that human beings' association to networking is feeling dirty and needing to wash. What's interesting is that we don't feel that association when it comes to making friends. And it doesn't matter how introverted you are. We all like making friends. We've just forgotten that we make friends over shared interests, like if you're a stamp collector, uh, shared activities, if we work out together, or in the case of my dinners, we cook uh, together, or shared history or culture. Now, that's how we tend to meet, because we have something in common. Uh, but that's only part of it. In order to really build meaningful relationships, we need a profound level of trust. And in American culture, we often try to accomplish this by, especially in the business world, like taking people out for expensive dinners or inviting them to a party with a swag bag to win them over. The problem is that none of that actually works. And in fact, the exact opposite works. It's called the IKEA effect. It turns out that we disproportionately care about our IKEA furniture because we had to assemble it. And as a result, we care about it more. In fact, anything we invest effort into, we care about disproportionately. It's why people like their own kids. It's not despite the fact that they had to stay up late with them and help them with their homework and care for them when they're sick, but because of it. This means that we fundamentally have to flip everything on its head. Instead of networking, we need to focus on making friends. And instead of trying to win people over, we have to find ways to do things together, to invest effort into one another so we care more about each other. Now, from what I've seen, maybe just as much as we need masks and vaccines to get us through this, what we also need is to connect and reach out to people, to find something in common and find something to invest effort into. This means that us introverts need to start accepting invitations and the extroverts find those people out there who are more isolated and lonely and reach out to them. Who knows? It might change their life. Thank you. That's beautiful. Um, 
how do you make the first step? How do you, um, well, I, I like the dinner party idea. How do you um, mm-hmm. break the ice? How do you start that process? So there's this really, uh, I'm, I'm going to throw some science at you because that's uh, my geeky way of relating to things. Um, so the funny thing is that people expect that trust precedes vulnerability. And it's actually the other way around. Uh, there's a process called the vulnerability loop, which is that I'll signal vulnerability. Let's say I'm sitting, we're taking a walk, Larry, and I go, oh my God, I'm so overwhelmed. If you make fun of me or ignore me, trust will be reduced. But if you acknowledge that I just put out a signal of vulnerability and you match it and say, John, ever since COVID, I've been totally overwhelmed too. What are you dealing with? Suddenly, we've both demonstrated that we can be safe with each other at a higher level of vulnerability. So I think the starting point in general is realizing that all of us are kind of in this situation where we're a bit overwhelmed. Our, our social skills have atrophied. We don't know how to behave anymore. Is it appropriate to hug, shake hands? Like when we even see people in a safe outdoor space and everybody's vaccinated. And so step one is to give us a little bit of slack, right? And then the second is that we need to really just reach out to people and be okay with it being a little uncomfortable. Um, my, from viewing social interactions as I've been kind of running them, uh, it takes people a few seconds and then it seems that they kind of remember what it's like and they're back to normal. When you described your dinner parties, um, there seemed to be a little gimmicky with regards to not giving uh, who they are or what they do. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I, there was another element for I thought, also thought was important, which was how, making them cook and clean up and participate in, in the effort. Mm-hmm. Um, and you related that back to the IKEA effect later. Um, when, yeah. you're, when you're planning a dinner party, uh, if, as you think about it, um, and, and anyone to simplify it, how, how, what, what are the key elements you think uh, that make it successful uh, for building friendship and building trust? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, so I think the first thing is that the things that we tend to worry about don't really tend to matter, meaning hosts are often really worried that oh, do they have the right table setting? Is it the right drinks, the flowers? Uh, and I see people worrying about this. And the fact of the matter is none of us tend to remember that kind of stuff. Like maybe they'll judge you if you're a florist or something. I don't know. But the, the most important thing in my mind is curation, which is selecting the right people to be in the room. And personally, the way I look at, at it is that I look for diversity of life experience. So if all of us were in the same industry, it might be a nice industry mixer, but if I'm throwing a dinner party and I want it to be interesting, your life experience, Larry, is very different than mine. So we could be mutually interested in one another, right? I, at my dinners, we have 12 people. I try to avoid any more than two in the same industry because otherwise it could potentially be a bit more competitive or there, people feel like there's a ranking. Um, the other thing is that the reason we cook together is this Ikea effect, but an activity or an action actually accomplishes two things. One is it makes the experience fundamentally novel. 
And that's really important for human beings. We have an entire section of a, the, our brains called the SNVTA, and it responds to novelty, and it entices us to explore and understand. So when something stands out as different, and you, yes, the no talking about work is kind of gimmicky, granted, uh, the, then it actually draws us out and makes us more interested in participating. Uh, the other thing it does is that if you put two people who don't know each other next to one another or across from each other, it feels like an interview. And hopefully one of them is skilled enough to, to maneuver it. When you give us a task or an activity or a game, then it becomes a much more natural uh, experience. So I know a woman who runs a, a wine and cheese event, and she asks people to bring a two-minute story on a single word. And it could be truth or friendship or whatever it is. And then you could do this sitting around a dinner table or you could do it standing, having cocktails, is to share that story. And everybody's got a story. So I think that these kinds of things allow for both novelty and also allow for something that functions as an icebreaker so people feel more comfortable around each other, especially if they're strangers. You know, I wanted to um, – go ahead. Uh, John Mueller just had a question. Um, I don't know if there's any research on it, but it would be interesting. Uh, is it different talking, for example, over the telephone with somebody or doing it on FaceTime or on, uh, on Zoom? In other words, seeing them, does that increase? Is it basically the same as just talking on the phone? Or the fact that you actually see them doing it, even if you don't need to see them, uh, uh, enhance sort of the bonding experience? So I, I'll be honest, I haven't looked specifically at this research, but I think one of the easiest comparisons, which would suggest yes, is, is there, are you a sports fan? Pardon? Are, are you a sports fan? Is there a team you follow? Uh, yeah, sometimes, right. Okay. I have to follow, so, I have to, I'm at Ohio State, so I have to follow the football team, I can tell you. It's perfect. <laughs> so watching them on television fundamentally feels different than being at the stadium. Yes. And I don't know why, and you could argue that it's the, you know, the energy, the noise, the background experience, the number of people. There, there is something fundamental that happens when we are in the same physical space that is different and can't be or hasn't yet been reproduced digitally. Right? And so uh, my inclination is to think that that we just aren't there technologically or, you know, maybe if we we're one day in the matrix, we can get, get, get to that point. But in human interaction is, is just fundamentally different. There's also probably a small, small subset of our culture that just feels more comfortable doing things over phone or Zoom um, just because they're maybe shy and really uncomfortable. Yeah, but the thing would be that it's not so much the sporting event sort of being there where you're in this massive community and so forth. But it's interacting with just one person, or maybe two or something. Well, if you can see them when you're doing it, is there any difference from uh, with not with not being able to see them? The the classic research that's pointed to in this is uh, research that was done on body language and voice tonality. So how much information you're getting. Um, here's the the my reasoning for thinking yes, and I'll be honest, I just haven't looked at this, this specific research, uh, is that 
the experience of belonging is so much at the heart of our species that the greatest punishment we can give people is being physically separated from the rest of the group, right? It's solitary confinement or it's exile, which means that we've evolved to be around each other. And so my guess is that, that it is just fundamentally different. It, some might argue it's pheromonal, some might argue it's visual, uh, but my inclination is to say, yes, being physically around each other is, that is probably more effective than being on Zoom, and Zoom is probably more effective for the most part than being over the phone. Okay, thanks. You know, I was, think, I was thinking about how, um, how you think about these dinner parties and how I organize these podcasts is, is similar. I mean, on the phone mm -hmm. right now, we've got John Muir, we've got John Levy, and we've got Kay Heimowitz. All of you have, have written books on different topics. Um, I've, you don't know each other. I've thrown you into this podcast um, to ask questions of each other and to engage with each other. Um, you know, I didn't tease you. I didn't make it a gimmick by not telling you who each other was beforehand, but you've had a chance um, to engage in this sort of activity. Um, how do you think about this podcast as compared to your, uh, your dinner parties as an example? Uh, so I think that this, uh, this serves a lot of the kind of check boxes that I try to check. I've generally found that if I want to engage with highly influential people, uh, there are kind of four things I, I try to make sure are present. Uh, the first is that it's a generous experience, meaning that you know, overwhelmingly, virtually nobody who attends a dinner that I run is like somebody I'm trying to do business with. Right? I have no, I'm not going to do work with an Olympian or a Nobel laureate. It's not my, my, it's not my field. Uh, the second is that it's novel. So, I think you're so far like 100%, right? It, this is a very generous experience. You take your time to do this. You don't charge anybody anything. You don't have ulterior motives. The second is uh, it's novel. I mean, you have your own format that's different than other people. Uh, it really functions as a draw. You're able to then, the third characteristic is curation. The people who are participating are, are highly selected and super respected in their industries. Right? And then the, uh, the fourth characteristic is one that I virtually never am able to hit. It's arguably the most desired emotion or experience is, um, is awe or wonder. It's that moment where you, uh, people like hold their child for the first time and the, you know, the universe disappears around them. Now that happens on rare occasions when people meet their like childhood heroes or something like that at my dinners, uh, but it's kind of that goal that we have. Uh, my hunch is that probably happens occasionally on here when an idea really shifts somebody's thinking. Um, the, where I think it differs, though, so you have like a phenomenal setup, right? Where I think it differs a little is how do we get people then to feel more connected to each other? So how do we implement that IKEA effect so that it ends up being more of like a community feel if that's something that you care about? Uh, but overwhelmingly, you're hitting like, you're, you're one of the few people who really hit uh, the, the marks on these things. I'm, I'm wondering, um, imagine you're a listener at home and you're saying, you know what, I want to I wanna start, I want to begin this John Levy process um, and I want to put my toe in the water. How would I do it? Um, can I... 
you know, normally what happens is I invite a bunch of friends over for dinner. Some of people know each other, some people don't. Uh, but at least I know everyone inviting. Is it critical that I get strangers to my dinner party, or can I at least start with people who don't know each other as a, as a, as a first step? So as a first step, what I'd actually encourage uh, is not to do a dinner party. <laughs> I know this is going to sound strange, uh, but dinner parties are a great time of day because people are generally free in the evening and they need to eat. Uh, but the success of the influencer's dinner isn't the dinner. I'd argue it's the cooking because it's that joint activity that actually lets them bond so that the dinner itself is interesting. Dinners can actually be very uncomfortable because you don't know who you're going to be seated next to. They might be boring, like all that kind of stuff. What I'd actually recommend if people really want to dip their toe in is finding an activity that you already love. It could be running. It could be uh, hiking. It could be knitting. Something that you're, you enjoy already so that uh, you're happy to participate regardless. And then I'd invite just a handful of people. It doesn't need to be strangers. It can just be some close friends and go on that hike. And if you enjoy it, then do it again. And maybe this time have your friends invite some of their friends. And after you do a few, then, oh, sorry, go ahead. Have you thought about um, making it a consistent concept, like having an open house um, every Saturday at three, or pick a specific time and place, and say, um, you know, I'm going to be open. I'm going to have an open house. Come on over. Um, or do you so, like to have it much more regulated? And in other words, you lose the element of curation if you make it up to the uh, people mm -hmm. who decides to come. But so you can handle that aspect of curation depending on who's on your email list. Right? or your communication list or invite list. Um, so there, I think there's two things. One is that uh, I do this in four cities every month when it's safe to do it. And, uh, and so timing becomes really difficult with everything else like holidays and so on. So we, we just have to do it when calendars allow. Um, there is an incredibly famous dinner in France I mean, I think thousands upon thousands of people have participated. And I believe it happens either, it's one of the weekend nights, it's like either every Friday or every Sunday or something like that. Uh, this man who doesn't have like, he's not particularly wealthy or anything like that. He, I don't even think his apartment's that big. Uh, all you have to do is send him a note letting him know that you want to come. And he opens his doors and for years, I think it's probably been 15 plus years uh, he's been doing this uh, to huge success. And there's been tons of media about it. And he doesn't do curation in that way. He lets it curate itself, which I think is phenomenal. I'm just frankly kind of maxed out on dinner parties <laughs> at six a month. I bet that's right. John, thank you so much for speaking. Oh, this is an absolute treat. Thank you for having me. Hi, our next guest is Ashley Mears. Uh, the topic will be Models and Bottles, How Beautiful Women Are Used to Boost Male Status. Ashley is an Associate Professor of Sociology at Boston University, and she recently wrote a book called Very Important People, Status and Beauty in the Global Party Circuit. Great. Thank you. So, right, I'm a sociology professor, and I followed an unusual path into academia. Like a lot of young girls, modeling was my teenage dream, much like boys dream of becoming professional athletes. 
um, when I was in Atlanta, where I grew up, I started modeling as a teenager, which meant shooting catalogs for the local department store. Um, and I noticed even then how hard it was to fit into extremely narrow standards of beauty. Most of the models were white. All of them were very thin and quite young. And I noticed there was a very high turnover. Uh, because of the quest for novelty, fashion is by definition change, and models have short careers, especially women, because their perceived value on the market is tied to youth. So much so that when I turned 19, my agency advised me to actually lie about my age when I went to New York to claim an audition that I was 18. So that's when I thought, maybe this isn't a good career path in the long term. So I went to graduate school to study sociology in New York because I wanted to understand the market dynamics of the fashion world. And in my first year of graduate study, I got scouted to join another model agency. And this time, I signed up with the goal of being an analyst to keep track of how the money worked. So I interviewed models, agents, and clients um, just to understand the market from their perspectives. And I also was sent out on modeling assignments. Now, again, from day one, the agents in New York advised me to lie about my age. By now, I was 23, and they told me to say that I was 18. In sociological terms, uh, people that study labor would see modeling as a bad job. That's actually what we would call it. This is a, a bad job. It's structurally unstable. There's high turnover. There's high risk. But indeed, there's also high rewards. The cultural imaginary of fashion models is that they're very successful, that it's very glamorous, that they're very well paid. But what I found in my first book, Pricing Beauty, is that actually models, for the most part, uh, are pretty poorly compensated. But they do get quite a lot of perks, um, such as the treatment of being a VIP in bottle service nightclubs. And this brings me to my second book, Very Important People. Um, so when I was researching the modeling industry back in New York around 2006, I met several men that work in nightclubs, and they're, they are called promoters. Um, their job is to promote the night for a club. Uh, they get paid by um, nightclubs anywhere between $200 to $1,000 a night to bring the right crowd. Now, for the highest end of nightlife in New York, these kinds of clubs offer what's called bottle service. Um, bottle service is when expensive bottles are brought to someone's table um, at prices that are starting at a markup of 1,000% on up. Um, rather than standing at the bar to order drinks, those, those bottles are brought to um, uh, people at their tables. And so promoters are expected to bring a, the right crowd. And in bottle service nightclubs, the right crowd is the crowd of very important people, which boils down to two things. It's men with money who are paying for the expensive bottles of alcohol. Uh, and it's women who are or look like fashion models. Um, and they are ubiquitously called girls, regardless of their age. So um, around 2010, 2011, I started going out with promoters um, who are paid in particular to bring uh, beautiful women or, or fashion models that they call girls to these clubs. So I followed promoters uh, beginning in 2011 for 18 months. I interviewed 44 of them. And what I found is that while promoters can make a pretty good living um, and the clubs make a, quite a big profit in the nightlife industry, the you know, huge, huge uh, multi-billion dollar industry. What I found is that the girls don't get paid. They add huge value to a space. So this raises a very interesting question. Why do people work for free? What I found is that 
there's kind of four different reasons to explain why, why um, the girls would participate in this structurally unfair arrangement. First, it's the free meal, because as I had learned earlier, most models don't get paid very much, so being able to go out and afford an expensive meal in a luxury restaurant um, is something most of them can't access. Two, they have strong relationships with promoters who spend a lot of time cultivating relationships with girls and building friendships. Three, promoters open up access to this exclusive world, which is also connected to a fourth kind of ego stroke of belonging to the elite. By definition, these are very exclusive spaces. Uh, and so promoters, even though promoters are gaining financially and the girls are not, promoters are opening up a, an opportunity for them to, uh, to afford a lifestyle that they otherwise can't. What is the allure of that uh, that encourages beautiful young women to, to choose that role? I think that there traditionally has been a split along gender of the importance of beauty, the importance of looks, um, capturing attention um, has been something that women have been encouraged to do even at a young age. Girls have the princess uh, fantasy um, and you know that involves a, a very certain body, a very certain kind of decorative role, whereas boys are socialized early on to be more active, to, to be the agents, um, to be the ones that are looking and not the ones that are looked at. The, the male gaze being um, a presumptively heterosexual gaze in which men are the ones that look and women are the ones who decorate themselves to be looked at. Um, two weeks ago, we had Terry Williams, a sociologist from the New School, uh, on our program. Mm -hmm. And he talked about his new book, uh, The Boogie Woogie, which is about a, a, an after-hours cocaine club. It's where uh, mm -hmm. men and women went uh, to do drugs. Um, there was um, also substantial sexual energy in the place, uh, and there was a lot of hooking up going on. What I found yeah. incredibly surprising about the clubs that you described was uh, two things. One, that there was very little drugs and it was discouraged by the promoters. And second, that even though there were all these beautiful women next to these um, very elite men, um, sex and interaction was um, not common. W what's going on? Right. Why is the Boogie Woogie different than your bottle service restaurants? <laughs> <laughs> right. So nightlife has all kinds of different niches and you know specific clubs with specific crowds on specific nights as well. But promoters that have been doing this for a long time and are really successful, and by long time I mean like 20, 25 years, um, part of the reason that they're so successful and they have that longevity is because they're sober and they, they take this very seriously as a, as a business. Um, it's not to say that drugs aren't in the clubs. I mean, certainly the, it's, an, it's a club. <laughs> like there's, there's lots of loud music and, uh, and you know, people are taking MDMA and cocaine. But it's not the, it's not the main point, that it, um, certainly not that the promoters are using because that comes with all kinds of liability. The, the hookups. The hookups is very interesting. Um, yes, of course, it's a nightclub. There's a sexual aspect to it, and that kind of energy um, is... Uh, uh, is arguably one of the reasons that nightlife exists. The possibility of sexual chance and flirtation and innuendo and all of that is very much there. People hook up, they kiss, they dance close, they touch. Um, there's a lot of touching, actually, of people who, who don't know each other very well. Um, and the question about is there a lot of hooking up and people going home 
particularly in this match between beautiful women and the rich men who are ostensibly paying for the company of beautiful women, not directly, they pay, they pay for it with the you know, price inflated bottles of champagne that they're buying. Um, they're buying the experience of a, a luxury, a luxurious setting, and they're also buying the feeling of being um, high status. And clubs are using beautiful women's bodies in order to help communicate that in order to help stroke a man's ego so he can look around and say he partied in the company of Victoria's Secret's models. Um, whether or not he goes home with them, it's enough that, they are, that they're present. That's, the, that's kind of one of the underlying purposes of this kind of VIP space. In the book, you say that uh, one client describes the girls as furniture women uh, because they would be making us look good like <laughs> furnishing the house. How, is that true? Are women like furniture? And then you further go on and you say, businessmen barely talk with the girls. Girls break the ice and help everyone to get comfortable in a homosocial world of business where most of the power holders are men. So it seems to me is, yeah. it's, you're just helping men talk to other men, uh, and they really have an interest in even speaking with these girls. <laughs> right. Yeah, sorry, I'm laughing at furniture women. Of course, it's not funny, but just the, um, the expression. I, re I remember, too, also being like, wow, that's such a, such a way to put it. <laughs> I hadn't thought of it. Um, I'm also reminded when I interviewed um, when I interviewed this person who books the fashion shows for Prada. He was explaining to me how he chooses the models because he sees hundreds of them and he has to choose, you know, ten for the show. And it, he was explaining it, you know, how can one account for taste? He said, you know, how did I choose this sofa that we're sitting on? I don't know. For me, it ticks the box. It's just taste. And I remember thinking, like, oh, he just compared women to the sofa, but. Um, but in, in that context, these are kind of ways that, that people are speaking <clears throat> about young women as, as commodities, as, as objects. Um, so I don't think that it's the sex um, that, that girls are offering, or it's sexiness, rather. It's the, it's the, visual, the visual feeling, or sorry, it's the, it's the feeling that one gets when one is surrounded by that visual kind of impact of like, here's a lot of really beautiful women. But what I did ask when I interviewed the clients, the wealthy men who were paying in these clubs, uh, I asked them if the women that they met out in clubs, these girls that were so valuable and added so much value, I asked if, they, if this was the pool of uh, romantic partners, that they were looking for a girlfriend or a future wife um, am among these women. And their answer was a very stern no. That these, this is the pool of, of hookups, they would say. Models are great decoration, right, like furniture. But this is not the pool of future marriage material. In the book, you mention that some, um, some women can use this modeling experience to um, jump up in social class, that they view this as their way of, I think you were quoting a French uh, sociologist Pierre Bourdeau at one point where you said yeah. that uh, um, that there are traditional social classes and that beautiful women can sometimes jump from uh, one class to a higher class uh, because of their beauty. Um, I'm just surprised that um, high status men uh, haven't bought uh, are drinking the Kool-Aid to take in uh, lower status beautiful women into their social circles. Why, why do you suppose that is? And, and is that something is that shaming by high status women uh, when they're around um, beautiful low, uh, less socially high status uh, women what's causing that yeah so um, 
so going back to the social theory of Pierre Bourdieu, he observed that one way that elites and the upper classes are able to maintain power amongst themselves is by carefully controlling marriage in and marriage out. Um, and we do see this in um, demography of the family that um, people who are upper class tend to partner with similarly high status partners. So um, rich men will marry women who come from rich families or at least that have the same kind of educational credentials. That actually it, it is quite rare to see, or the anomaly is um, like Melania Knobs and Donald Trump. And they met at a, at a party that was organized by somebody who, um, who hangs out very much in, uh, in this club world. So much for Cinderella. <laughs> Moving on to uh, the promoter for a second. What, what makes a good promoter? Um, and what kind of people are they? Are they just incredibly extroverted? Um, are they good businessmen? They're really good at making girls feel comfortable, making girls feel valuable, um, and, and, and making girls want to come out and work for free. One of the discussions in the book related to one of the promoters hanging out grand in West Broadway in his car and he's mm-hmm. an attractive girl uh, walking down the street. He jumps out of his car, leaves his car with the keys and runs over <clears throat> to you know, talk with this girl, get her number and, and encourage her to go out that night and join him at the party. Um, is that a perfect example of what these guys do for a living? They're constantly on the lookout for beautiful women and, and encouraging them to come out for free to some party? Yes. <laughs> so there's different strategies to do that, but that, that's a kind of key thing about their job. One of them told me there can be no night without the day. So what they're doing during the day is identifying girls, recruiting them, building a relationship with them, and then trying to mobilize them to come out. And so street scouting, this scene that you just described, um, that's, that's one way to do it. Um, yeah. I want to talk a little bit about the uh, elite businessmen. I don't know many people that go to these clubs. Who are these people? What, uh, and, and what is special about these particular sets of businessmen that they want to hang out in these clubs? And, um, and, and who's going to do real business in these clubs? <laughs> right, yeah. So, yeah, the, the men are quite a mix. Um, they come from a range of backgrounds. Um, some of them are occasional participants in this scene. They drop in once a year or twice a year. Um, some of them are regulars, but they're not spending in huge sums. They might go out with a couple of friends and share the bill. And uh, businessmen, mostly in New York, or people from Wall Street, from finance, from tech. So it's really a mix. The elite, um, they're hypermobile, they're global, they're circulating, their money comes from all different sources, old money, new money, different industries, and so on. But for the most part, one thing that um, most of these rich men had in common is uh, relative youth. So they're not as young as the girls, um, but it would be people who are, who are not, or men who are not typically much older than their 50s, or maybe 50s would be okay, but not 60s. Um, you could certainly see a, you know, a, a, a silver fox in the crowd, and that, that wouldn't be unusual, like it would be to see a 60-year-old woman in this space would be very unusual. So it's, it's more young money or, or men who are um, starting out and making a lot of money, people that are working for their money, so what sociologists would call the working rich, uh, people who didn't inherit. Even within 
a nightclub, it's not all people who have, it's not all men who have lots of money. If you think about how big a nightclub is, I mean, some of them have like, you know, 500 person capacity, they're like really huge spaces. So they have to get filled with some, like somehow. And so at the door, the door person will make these um, distinctions of people who can come in because they can pay for the table. And those are people who have money and as evidence that they're going to lay down their credit card and, and pay for, um, pay for the uh, renting a table. Um, and then women who are beautiful and they get in for free. But then there's lots of other people that are valuable to the club because they keep the place from looking empty. And so these are people that are sometimes called filler, fillers. Um, so they might not have you know, thousands of dollars to spend on a night, but they could pay for $50 you know, for their drinks at the bar and, um, and they'll, they'll fill the space. And they look you know, well-dressed enough that, that the club values those people as well. What I think is interesting, you, you mentioned this concept of good civilians. Uh, these are women who are very attractive but aren't model-like. What, uh, what is the role of the good civilian for the club? <laughs> so, so good civilian was my role uh, in this space. A, a good civilian is somebody who is, is not a model because the fashion modeling industry has very exacting and very narrow standards of beauty, of you know, height and thinness and youth. But a good civilian is somebody who is maybe off a little bit in one or more of those categories, but when the lights are low, you know, she, she will still look close enough to a model, so pretty enough, um, but not quite a model. And so when I was doing this field work, I was already uh, 31, which is, which is way past retirement age for fashion models. Um, and, uh, and, but the reason that I was able to get so close to promoters, the reason that they tolerated me was because I was a good civilian. I was still valuable. If I was a little bit shorter or a little bit older, like I am now, or, uh, or a bit heavier, um, I, would not, I would not have been able to, to get the access that I did. In your modeling book, uh, you mentioned that, what, that look changes all the time and that even the people who are in the booking agency business are constantly surprised at what works and what doesn't. How has it changed in the time that you've been in the industry? So that distinction between the editorial market and the commercial market, I think you see this in a lot of arts fields where, um, you know, the editorial fashion doesn't appeal to a mass market. It's, it's really communicating taste to a, a rarefied audience that has been trained um, so like other fashion insiders or photographers and designers can see beauty in something that your average consumer in middle America, I'm just going to use my mom as an example, that my mom just wouldn't get, yeah, um, because she's not in high fashion. Yeah, she doesn't, she doesn't read the magazine. She doesn't look at all of the Instagram. Um, but I'm always fascinated to see these different ways of assessing the value of any, any cultural good, you know, a work of art or, or beauty um, and so on. I will say your question was about the content of the look and, and how are those looks at the editorial end changing. I think that they've opened up enormously um, and that's because the, the visibility of people and the, the assertion of people to proclaim loudly and in public and to be heard that they have a right to be visible in the beauty industry, that has been transformed with social media. <clears throat> and so there have been 
very large women who are like a size 20 who have become top models because these because of the, the platform of Instagram has has allowed them to contest these hegemonic standards of um, of the fashion modeling industry. In the book, you also discuss the uh, the role of race for models. That at the clubs they would allow a few African Americans, but not too many. Um, and you also mentioned it in your modeling book, something similar to that as well, that there would be a few black models in a magazine. Recently, I think since the Black Lives Matter movement is going on, uh, fashion magazines are full of African-American women. How do you think about that? The distinction between editorial and commercial modeling is actually really important here. Um, So in the commercial end of the market, where catalogs are being marketed to everyday middle American consumers, those kinds of bodies tend to be much more ethnically, racially diverse. You'll see just a lot more black bodies in the commercial end of the market. You'll see more full-figured, quote, you know, large size, uh, plus size bodies um, in like commercial catalogs than you would see on a high-end catwalk. So like a commercial catalog that I worked for, uh, for instance, they were conscientious that they needed to have like a, a black woman, an Asian woman, a redhead, and a blonde. Right? Like they need to have like you know every, everybody that that um, uh, will will look at their ad and say like, huh, this you know this appeals to me. Um, it's still aspirational. Um, at the editorial end of the market, and because the editorial fashion production is insiders speaking the language of high-end fashion to one another. Um, they're, they're not beholden to what their consumers want, uh, necessarily. Um, they're just beholden to their, their own sense of taste and what they think is fashionable. And in my interviews, I found interviewing people that are you know, booking the shows for the catwalks and so on, their default aesthetic was a thin, young, white woman, and everything else you know, outside of that um, was, was noticeably different. And um, in the editorial end of the market, they they took pains to try to, for instance, when they're book, when they're casting the shows uh, for a fashion show, they would take pains to try to um, get at least one black model that could be on the catwalk because they don't they want to avoid the accusation of white supremacy or of a racist vision of beauty. We have to get one, but everybody want it like there's only one that's really good this season, and everybody is getting that one good black model. I usually end each session with. Uh, a note of optimism, what would you have to say, Ashley? Okay, so the thing that makes me really optimistic, just, I mean, it's, it's separate from what we're all talking about, but um, so I have, I have two little kids. I have a six-year-old and a three-year-old, and they've, they've both gone back to daycare um, or kin- kindergarten, and my, my six-year-old is so elated and so excited to be like back in the world and back with friends. Um, I, I'm like incredibly optimistic about about that. And now, because I've been vaccinated and I've you know I, I've seen the kind of excitement of my little one being back in school and, and connecting with other people, even in a closed space. I'm I'm thinking like I think I think I might go. To a maybe not a club, but I think I might go out like to a maybe a, maybe a bar soon. I'm very optimistic about this. John Levy, I want to ask you a question. You just heard Ashley describe um, this bar life, uh, this club life, and how there's intimacy and interaction um, 
but it's done, I, I would describe it without trust and without that same sort of connection. How do you think about this other method of influencers and network building as it compares to some of the techniques that you talked about in your book and in your talk? So I think there's this funny uh, characteristic called the misattribution of arousal. Uh, and the famous example is that uh, men were asked to cross, uh, these were two different groups of men, but the men crossed individually across like a standard bridge, like the Brooklyn Bridge, and some crossed a high ropes bridge. And on the far end, there was an attractive woman that said, if you have any more questions about the study or you need to get in touch with me, here's my number. And the men that crossed the high ropes bridge uh, disproportionately called her and asked her out. And the argument was that they misattributed the heart, high uh, heart rate and the excitement that they felt from being up so high on an unsteady high ropes bridge for the way that they felt for. And so I think that nightclubs produce a, it's theater, right? You have uh, a stage is set, it, the lights are dark, you can't really hear each other so that you have to start whispering into each other's ears, uh, which means that you're often physically touching a person. Uh, and it creates this odd intimacy and you mix that with alcohol and late hours and drugs and all that. And suddenly you have this kind of misattribution of arousal. This, oh, I had such a great time, so it must have been because of you. And interesting. it's interesting. I believe at one point there's this crazy, crazy club in New York called The Box. And it had, I think, the largest corporate accounts of any venue in the entire city. Because it was literally theater. Yeah. Kay Heimowitz, what did you make of uh, Ashley's talk? Kay, that was you. John, I, um, I want to end on a, a note of optimism from you. John Levy, what are you optimistic about? Um, I'm optimistic about uh, seeing how excited people are to be around each other. Uh, you know, a year and a half ago, you invited somebody to a social experience. They might be like, oh, I'm so tired from work. I, you know, it's not really something I want to do. I might feel obligated from work. But now people are literally realizing, like, I need other human beings and I can't wait to spend time with them and I can't wait to catch up with them about meaningful things and I can't wait to see the world. And I think that that's a really healthy attitude. John Mueller, what are you optimistic about? Well, um, I, I'm willing to predict that we've now undergone 75 years without World War III, and I think we're going to continue that record for a while. But there may be a couple of shorter-range issues. One is the exhaustion with war uh, by the United States in terms of Afghanistan and, uh, and Iraq. And I think that's probably going to last. We're going to have sort of an Iraq syndrome. Let's not do that again. I think that will be an improvement. The other thing is that one of the big problems has been intervening in other countries' civil wars. And uh, that has gone fantastically awry, both in Syria and in, Le and in uh, Yemen, where, where these civil wars probably would have been over much earlier had it not been for outside intervention. And in other words, the total the damage, you might end up with a bad government, but you wouldn't end up with this catastrophically long war. And I think that is perhaps going out of style, which would be uh, a, a distinct improvement. Uh, Larry, I am here. I, I uh, had just ahead. accidentally muted. 
what's your question? Uh, I guess two questions. What are you optimistic about, and what did you think of some of Ashley's comments about the nightclubs? Well, I'll start with Ashley. Um, does she, I don't know how much she talks about evolutionary psychology, but uh, when you talk about young, beauty, youthful beauty, young women who are beautiful, and rich men, I mean, that is, that's what evolution is, <laughs> one of the first uh, principles of uh, evolutionary psychology is that the um, you know the mating the mating dance uh, involves uh, women uh, trying to attract uh, and men uh, uh, beautiful women trying to attract powerful men and powerful men trying to attract the best mates and it's just you know it's built into our nature so. I don't know if that's part of what she talked about or not, but seemed uh, seemed to be uh, crying out for an evolutionary psychology explanation. Um, in terms of optimism, uh, I think you know uh, I watched Brooklyn turn around and become something nobody imagined could happen, and there was every reason in 1982 when I moved there to be a, you know, quite worried about the future of the city and about Brooklyn. Um, but uh, that's not what happened. Uh, what happened was that it, uh, trans- it utterly transformed itself. Um, there are many, many problems to face in the immediate future and the long, long-term future. But uh, we've uh, gone through a lot of phases in, in Brooklyn uh, and in New York City, and there'll be a lot more to come. Okay, that ends uh, today's session, but I want to take a quick minute to plug next week's show. Sunday, May 16, Brad Stone will join us to discuss his new book that will be released this Tuesday entitled Amazon Unbound, Jeff Bezos and the Invention of a Global Empire. This is Brad's second book on Amazon. His first book, The Everything Store, is one of my favorite business books of all time. So I'm really excited to read this latest book uh, and what's coming out this week. Our second speaker will be Dietrich Volrath, who is professor and chair of the economics department at the University of Houston. He will be discussing his new book entitled Fully Grown, Why a Stagnant Economy is a Sign of Success. Our third speaker will be Michael Moss, who is a Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter formerly of the New York Times. You may recall that Dr. David Katz, the Yale nutritionist, recommended on what happens next that we read Michael's new book entitled Hooked food, free will, and how the food companies exploit our addictions. Michael questions the motivations of large food makers and compares them to the tobacco companies of old. Our next speaker will be Paul Rossi, who is a math teacher who was recently barred from working at the Grace Grace Church School in New York City. Paul was ostracized and for his opposition to the racial indoctrination program at the school, I expect this conversation to be very controversial. Our final speaker is Vivek Ramaswamy, who is the founder of the Biopharmaceutical biopharmaceutical firm Royvent Sciences, which announced an IPO using a SPAC this past week. Vivek has a new book coming out entitled Woke, Inc., Inside Corporate America's Social Justice Scam. Uh, Vivek will be speaking in opposition to the new ESG movement, which refers to environmental, social, and corporate governance that measures the sustainability and societal impact of a business. If you're interested in listening to a replay of today's program or any of our previous episodes or wish to read a transcript, you can find them on our website, whathappensnextin6minutes.com. Replays are also available on Apple Podcasts, Podbeam, and Spotify. 
I would like to thank today's speakers for their insights. I would also like to thank our listeners for their time and for engaging with these complex issues. Please stay tuned for next Sunday to find out what happens next. Thank you so much, and you may disconnect at this time. Bye-bye.